last week we finished a section in Isaiah. We talked about a city, or as I brought up, possibly cities destroyed, and then the city established. So now we're going to move to a new section that we see that God does actually rule. From this next section, we're going to see that he rules the world history. Um, and this is great to know because we, his people, we know that despite what the world does, God's promises are sure, and, and we know how world history ends. Now, several chapters ago, we saw how Egypt and Assyria, God fully intends to bring them into his holy mountain, remnants of them. And right now, these are the two superpowers of the day. They're it. They are it. So to imagine these superpowers that everyone's looking to for help and security would come and bow down before God must have seemed very unlikely and improbable to these people. And so today, we are just going to cover verses 1 through 13 of 28. The king at this time is, is still Hezekiah. And as we went over earlier, Hezekiah, he has stopped the alliance his father had set up with Assyria. But instead of trusting in God, he has looked to Egypt. And as we talked about, Cush is really the main power of Egypt. But he made that alliance with them. And we kind of look, you know, like we said, Isaiah is not A to Z, it's section to section. So we saw what happened in chapter 20 already with what, what took place with Egypt. When they came to combat Assyria, they were beaten and their soldiers were lined up and marched naked all the way to their new home. Now, so we know that, but this is a period prior to that. It's, it just blows our Western mind away when we read these things. So while in this chapter and in chapter 29, we are not going to see the name of this country called the Destroyer and the country which makes a covenant of death, of Judah makes a covenant with death, but we know right now, because we will see it in the next couple chapters, that the destroyer is Assyria, and the country they make the covenant of death with is Egypt. Um, in chapters 30 through 32, these countries will be named. So today's breakdown of these 13 verses will be as follows. Verses 1 through 6, we're going to see the end of Ephraim and a new beginning of God's people. In verses 7 and 8, we're going to see God's leaders spew pride. Verses 9 and 10, the simple word of faith mocked. 11 and 12, the simple word replaced with a foreign tongue. 
And then 13, the simple word, enforced. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just want to thank you so much for this word, this word that is just so powerful, and we see so much in it. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who illuminated this word to, to people that really took the time to break this down and, and, and make sure we fully get an idea of, of what this covers. We thank you so much for them. Otherwise, we would just go through this and miss everything in it. We thank you just for this time where we can come, just quiet our hearts, quiet our minds, realize that we are giving this time to you to provide that simple faith message back to us so we can go on in another week of growing stronger, of praying for, for growth, and for steadfastness in our own lives. We just praise you again for your word and what it means to us. Amen. So these 13 verses starts off, Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a, a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He casts down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the junk, drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like the first ripe fruit before summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it, and as soon as it's in his hand, it's gone. In that day, the Lord of hosts will crown, be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and a strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment, for all the tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom will he teach with knowledge? And who will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from milk, those taken from the breast, for it is upon precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, for by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people, to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, and yet they may go. 
and fall backward and be broken, snared, and taken. So we need to get that proper picture in our minds of what is actually going on here, what's taking place. The first part, I want you to remember as when you were a kid or, or maybe you've done this as a parent and you've had your children or maybe you were the child being talked to and your parents said, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're hanging out with this kid. Maybe you were that kid. You, you're hanging out with this kid and they're nothing but trouble. See what's happened to them. See what's going down. Do you want to be like that? Do you want to grow up and be like that kid? You know, this is the warning they're getting, Judah's getting, about Ephraim. Um, so this chapter that we're talking about, God is warning Judah not to not reject my word. Um, they believe they are safe because they have formed this alliance with Egypt. And he tells them that they, like Ephraim, can be quickly and easily wiped out for their disobedience. So let's look at verses 1 through 6. The end of Ephraim and a new beginning of God's people. Verse 1 said, Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Now, I want you to notice something. The word ah means woe. And if we're familiar with Isaiah, we know the woes and what it's saying. It's a term we're familiar with, and it's used to ensure that we see the emotion, the emotion and the sympathy for this coming judgment. We're going to see this word woe used again, and if you're using an ESV, it's going to say ah, but it means woe. We see it again in 29.1, 29.15, 31, 30 verse 1, 31 verse 1, and 33 verse 1. So God's pointing out that Samaria was beautiful. It was beautiful. Fertile valleys, plenty of food, plenty of drink, and they were doing quite well. And they became quite pleased with themselves. Their pride was filled and it could be said that they were so full of pride that it seemed as they were drunk on wine. Or it could mean, since they were so proud of themselves, they were actually drunk on wine. So we have this northern kingdom. Many of them seemed to have forgotten God, and they worshipped other little g-gods during this time. So the prophets God sent were not listened to. So God is pointing out to Judah, watch and see, watch and see. If you reject my word also, what happened to them will happen to you. And you see this section, this section here seems a lot like today. You see a beautiful land, you see people enjoying success, but their lives are a spiritual paralysis brought on by a spiritual stupor. It's very much like drunk today. And that is brought on by the excess in their lives 
and the desire for more and more and more, but more being anything but God. God acts here when he is heard from the moral remnant in the land crying out for divine intervention. And he and only he determines when his time is he's going to act. And his actions, verses 2 through 4, let's take a look. It says, Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He casts down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like the first ripe fruit before summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it's in his hand. So here we see what happened. God sent an army, Assyria, who completely came in and wiped out Ephraim. And it was so devastating, it could be called like a hailstorm or a massive hurricane. And this is the picture we see of the Assyrians, the devastation they caused in Ephraim. Hail or hurricane. You, you can get a picture of this in your mind, how bad it is. I had a lady that works for me in, in Colorado that said a huge hailstorm was over her house for 30 minutes. And you don't realize how bad that is until she described what her house looked like, her neighbors who had cars out front, just how devastating it was. The other picture is, you may not know this, but Al and I, were together with another group of men and we went to Louisiana to go help out shortly after Hurricane Katrina. We started in Covington, Louisiana and we were cutting trees off this, this woman's house. Um, and these are trees, not like we have here. These were trees. Um, I remember I had to stop one guy that was walking up the trunk to go all the way to the top of the house carrying a running chainsaw. It was like, no, 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 I'm not telling your wife what happened to your arm. But Lefty's a cool nickname. But we later, we later went to go to New Orleans itself, and we were sent to a police officer's house to go get the insides completely, take everything out. And, you know, here's the picture of this because it was so eerie. We were driving through neighborhoods, much like you drive through now, nothing. There was nothing there, nothing. No kids, no nothing. So you get that picture of devastation. There was nothing. And you quickly learned what the signals meant on the house that was riding. You could see someone passed away in there, or someone got out here. There was no death here. That thing, it was wild. It was wild. And then we also, on our last day, because after working for seven, eight days, we had a break. We went into New Orleans, saw the French Quarter, went over to the levee where it actually broke. And you saw the side where the levee broke, you saw foundations. And the houses were probably down the street. We saw some. Some were probably broken. 
and it was eerie. It was just like there was nothing. Then the weird part is you go on the other side of the levee, it was a beautiful Sunday afternoon. Kids were out playing, everything was intact. It was wild. It was wild. So this was major destruction, and God was promising this same destruction to Judah. They would experience this. God was showing that the people of Samaria were so offensive to him, and we know God will only allow it for so long, that he is promising to sovereignly, sovereignly deal with any rejection of him. And verse 2 ends up showing us that this punishment would be cast down by the hand of God. And now in verse 3, we're going to see they were trampled, trodden underfoot. Basically, from top to bottom, they would be dealt with. And verse 3 links to verse 1 by reminding us that the proud crowns of the drunken, or prideful Ephraimites would be pummeled. And verse 4 shows us a very interesting picture here. I've probably not a, done a very good job of it as reading, but what Isaiah does here in verse 4, in the Hebrew, he speeds up the speech, the pacing of the speech, to give us an example of how quickly this fruit was noticed on the tree, plucked and eaten and forgotten. So the traveler is walking through, sees this, this fruit, first one done, but it's picked and eaten. So God's showing us that this proud people turned away from God and will so quickly be taken down and forgotten. Verse 5 gives us a picture of, of moving away from the picture of the proud being swallowed up to looking to the hope that we will have from God in that day. We have this hope because while God will bring us punishment, he is faithful and he promised to preserve his people. We will see the false crown replaced by the true crown. The fading flower replaced by the durable beauty of God and the proud human removed and the divine in its place and the divine will be worshipped. God's people see him as their true adornment and not anything that has been created. The fading flower of Israel was no more and that beauty is replaced by God forever. Verse 6, God will create a true and secure society. God will provide the spirit of judgment to those who judge and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Psalm 122 describes this verse. It says in verses 1 through 7, I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, build as a city that is bound 
firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgments were set, the thrones for the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. We see it all right there in that passage. God will put in place one city where he will dwell with us. Think about that. He will dwell with us. And because of him, it will be a strong, victorious, and secure city. In Isaiah 26.1, to give you a, a sneak peek, it says or actually a look back. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Here we go. Verses 7 and 8. God's leaders spew pride. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. And we can miss these powerful words as we look all the way from 7 to 13 if we don't take a deeper look at them. So we get the idea here. What we're looking at is Isaiah is a witness to this post-alliance party with Egypt. The team was sent out to go meet with Egypt and secure this alliance. They've come back. They probably have some Egyptians with them or some Cushites, and, and they're celebrating, and they're worshiping, not God. Um, what I found out this week and it was new to me. In fact, I was, I was telling Colleen is, you know, I'm, I'm getting these papers sent to me about Isaiah 28, and I've been looking at them, and they mostly deal with 14 through 29. And the day, about 720, I got one talking about this passage. So it was like, okay, I get it. 11th and a half hour, right before. But So what it talked about was, the Egyptians had a goddess, and I had seen her, was going to pick her up next week, but she was the Egyptian goddess of death and protection, and her the name was Mut, M-U-T. And in Egypt, they worshipped Mut and sought her protection, and, but to do it, the, the form of worship, which what human being would not like, um, the, the way you worship her was get so inebriated, um, you did that so you could commune with her and seek her protection. In this article, it says uh, some, some men named Richard Jasnow and Mark Smith wrote that Mutt's devotees were known to worship her with music, feasting, drunkenness, and acts of sexual intercourse by which means by doing this, they were told they would see her in a vision. 
So why wouldn't they do this? Why wouldn't the Israelites do this, right? They've secured protection with Egypt, and Egypt was kind enough to grant them this protection. So you might as well party with them and party with their God. In, in their minds, they must think, you know, Assyria will hear of this. They will hear that we formed this alliance with mighty, powerful Egypt, who's aligned with Cush, and they won't dare attack at all. Not, not the mighty of army of Egypt, right? And this is not right. We know that. We know, first of all, Judah already had the creator of their world as their protection. God was their protection. So Isaiah seems to be the lone voice here speaking this message of reliance of God and preaching this offensive message of salvation through God alone to his people. So who could the people in that day turn to, right? So here we have the priest. The priest is what? He is the voice of man to God. And then you have the prophet. The prophet is the voice of God to man. These leaders who should have stood firmly against the alliance with Egypt and said, no, we have God alone, they are sitting here at this party and they're going along with what is popular. They are not wanting to make ways. It was interesting because Jeremiah went through this and he went through dealing with these same lying prophets and weak priests. So in Jeremiah 14, Jeremiah 14, 13 through 16, it says, And then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I didn't send them. Nor did I command them to speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord, concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say, Sword and famine shall not come upon this land. By sword and famine, these prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out into the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and the sword, with none to bury them. Their wives their sons, their daughters, for I will pour out their evil upon them. This behavior by people that claiming to speak for God and also who teach his word, this is quite common today too. Um, 
Back in the era, they did not want to bring a harsh word. So, and they wanted to receive favor in the eyes of leaders of his people. And today, it still happens. I was watching article after article, clip after clip, of reporters, secular reporters, talking to false Christian leaders today. Leaders like Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, and others. And the reporters were asking them basic Christian doctrine and beliefs. And instead of answering and giving the quote in the Bible that commands it, they talked for minutes without actually saying anything, much like it was during an election year. They never stated what God says on the subject. Never. And the worst thing, the thing that's probably going to be their greatest judgment, is those reporters, those secular reporters, no matter what they did, kept bringing them back to the question. Bringing them back to the question. You knew the reporter was ready. You knew they were ready. Because then you would watch a, a true Christian leader, uh, John Piper, a John MacArthur, a Vody Bochum, would sit there and give them an answer, and the reporter had follow-up questions to try to show them how God's law isn't popular today. And every time, they, they took him right back to the Word and said, I'm telling you what God says, not what man says, what God says. Um, and all these reporters got from these false leaders was gobbledygook. Today also, today also you get false teaching brought in another avenue. We have Christian music. One of my recent former favorites was Lauren Daigle. Beautiful voice. But watching an interview, she was asked on a subject of homosexuality. So here this woman is that is teaching Jesus through songs said, I can't answer that. I have friends that are in that. I don't know what the Bible says about it. Why don't you go read it and then tell me and we'll both know. And she wasn't the only one. She wasn't the only one. And these are people I thought was so funny because Colleen and I were listening to Air One or the message, whatever it's called, this morning. And they were talking about cancel culture and how the disciples of Jesus' day would be in that group. They'd be canceled out today. But it's like, wait a minute. You same people they're talking about that you play this weak, weird Christian music. So that's why after a while I'll just change the channel to the 70s. My era. The thing God's telling us is God's law is not hard. It's not, especially in today's world, it's not hard to find out. It's easily read and it's easily understood. Just in my quiet time this morning in Deuteronomy, we went over the Ten, Ten Commandments again. And it said, Thou shalt not. Pretty simple. Pretty simple. But the priest of the prophets in this time enjoyed the comfort 
that they got lavished on them by giving in. And they did not want to stop this easy lifestyle. Did not want to. So here they are, so lying to themselves. They all congratulated themselves on, on their great understanding of God and their elite status in society. So let's picture Isaiah coming to them. After this party's been going on for a while, and like we said before, parties in this culture didn't just last for hours. They would last for days and for weeks. So he would come to these false representatives of God, and he sees them at a table together, and the men are filled with vomit, and also they are covered in feces. Vomit was the result of worshiping mud. Pictures in her temple in Egypt show people throwing up on other people. It was like a requirement. And the ESV tells us filthy vomit. What the word is really saying is vomit and feces. Covered. Covered. These people are so trashed, they no longer understand when they need to get up, excuse themselves from the table, and go take care of something. They have no idea. And they're so trashed, they do not realize they're in this condition. So these trashed, trashed men, who are supposed to represent God, see Isaiah looking at them, and Isaiah will not shrink back. And I am sure he is reprimanding them for a deep disobedience to God and the worst thing, by worshiping another God. And this happened much like Jeremiah did. So the response from these men to Isaiah's teaching them is picked up in verses 9 and 10. 9 and 10 is the simple word of faith mocked. Nine starts off, to whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? To those weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast, for it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. You've got to imagine this. In complete contradiction of their appearance, they are so out of touch with reality and the magnitude of their situation, these false prophets and priests are looking at Isaiah, probably they see three Isaiahs, and they're saying to us, who are you, who are you to tell us God's word? Don't you know who we are? We are the elite of the elite in this kingdom. And we have been serving God for decades. Young man, we understand the deeper things of God. They're getting across that the message Isaiah is teaching is too simple. And who is Isaiah? Who is he? 
to think that he can teach us, these top-notch, sophisticated leaders, the basic commands of God like they are children just removed from the breast. Which is interesting because part of the fascination with the Egyptian goddess Mut that these guys would have learned is part of the thing to get protection from her was to like, appear like an infant child and suckle. So verse 10 says, the men covered in vomit and feces, thinking they are in the upper echelon of God, now mock Isaiah with these lines that we see. And the English writer, the English writer, Gordon Matthew Thomas Sumner, in 1980, wrote a lyric to a song that sounds a lot like this passage. I want you all to realize how impressive that name is I just gave you. Gordon Matthew Thomas Sumner. Sounds really elite. I guarantee you all probably heard of this guy. Um, in, his, in his performances, he goes by the name Sting, and he's the lead singer for the band the police and he wrote a song and it's as eloquent as what these priests said to Isaiah the precept along precept one syllable words and and I'll give you the full name again Gordon Matthew Thomas Sumner he wrote the do 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 the da 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 is all I want to say to you you may not see this in verse, in verse 10, but the lines for it is upon precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, is gibberish. It's Hebrew gibberish. One-syllable words like you might see a person go up to a baby and go, goochie, 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 goo. They are just dogging Isaiah. It's so funny because looking at this, you see, you see people teaching. It's like, yes, to learn God's word. It's precept upon precept. This is gobbledygook. It is. These mocking words from these pathetic priests and, and prophets, as they sat there, either reclined, slumped over, or whatever they were, and they completely covered in spoo and dew were saying these words. Again, these words in Hebrew are one syllable, and Isaiah would have stood there in disgust receiving this gibberish from them as if, like I said, you might hear an adult talk to a baby. The picture had to be completely dramatic and completely mind-blowing to see this. It had to be. But it probably wasn't very uncommon during this. People are so lost that they fully believe they understand God. But instead of obeying Him, they scoff at correction and insult or just insult the ones that just corrected them. Maybe this is why it's so hard for some of us to lovingly, lovingly 
correct someone, which by not doing so is not in line with Scripture. We see a picture of what Isaiah is doing here, one of my favorite passages of all time, is in 1 Kings 22. I won't read the whole thing, but it's such an awesome passage. The prophet Micaiah, I love it, mockingly tells the kings after they ask for him, after 400 prophets tell these two kings, go to battle, you're going to win. They pull all these theatrics. They grab these iron horns. You will gore the enemy. We're going to win big time. The king of, of Judah says, isn't there someone else? 400 people tell you, go to battle. God puts it on this king of Judah. Is there someone else? Ahab says, yeah, but I don't like him. He never gives me the answers I want. Let's not even bother with it. So they bring him out. Micaiah tells him, yeah, go to battle, you'll win. Ahab tells him, stop it. I told you, tell me the truth. Tell me the truth. So Ahab told him, I mean, Micaiah told him, you're going to go to battle, Ahab, you're going to be killed. He's like, see, this guy always tells me the stuff I don't want to hear. And, and then Micaiah was threatened by the, the, the prophets that lied. But what happened? Ahab was killed. It says a random archer just shot an arrow and it hit him precisely where the only opening on his armor was. Took him out. So I want you to see a more subtle, subtle part of this passage that God is shedding light on. The overall takeaway here is God is showing us that if we don't understand his message, he will bring in another voice that will drive his people back to seeking out God and his message. And that voice here, verses 11 through 12, is a simple word replaced by the foreign tongue. 11 and 12 say, For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people. And to whom he has said, This is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. And while verse 10 starts with the word for, the, the four starting in 11, how 11 starts off with the word four, is better translated very well then. So we basically see, so you're going to answer me back with, with baby talk? Very well then, is how 11 starts. God's message, he heard their mocking chant to his representative, so he tells them, very well then, if you're not going to set my law, you're going to get another message. And that other message will be from a foreign people in a foreign land, and they're going to tell you this message in a foreign tongue. And we see in verse 12 that when the simple 
loving word of God is dismissed, divine judgment will enter in, and the message here to them will be unintelligible and not understood. Isaiah 30.15 Isaiah 30.15 says, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength, but you are unwilling. I'll say that again. But you were unwilling. The leaders of that day were unwilling to enter into obedience, unwilling to be the example to all the people by following God. They believed their own press clippings and only trusted in themselves pride. Pride. And just like Isaiah told Hezekiah's father in chapter 7, at the end of verse 9. He told him, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Telling God's people that they will fall for anything. They will do as they please, and they will not understand this simple message of God, which requires obedience God is offering he's offering these people rest and peace much like he does today to us and it's being ignored it's being ignored verse 12 says they were unwilling to hear they were unwilling to hear so verse 13 is the simple word enforced so God repeats back to them <laughs> here they're sending them out going to send them out so he repeats back to them and I wonder if they were sober then and they had any idea what he was saying to them and the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept precept upon precept Line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And so they may go and fall backward and be broken, snared, and taken. Now that they are condemned, God is using Isaiah to use their own babbling words against them. And the babbling they're going to hear after that is in a foreign tongue to them, which they won't understand. They will be captive, and again, they will not understand. They will choose not to hear. They will go to a place they do not desire, all because of the disobedience they chose. They chose to believe in their own power and in the power of other nations, and not trust God. That trust is broken and they will end up snared, captured, and unable to escape. So we're going to stop here and we'll look at the rest of chapter 28 next week. 
we're going to see that God's people who currently have rejected his word where we're at next we'll reject his covenant then we will see what follows after that so the people of Judah here are our example not to give into this world and and not to believe that we are this amazing people but we are to look to God as the incredible loving one who chose us to be his people. And our response is to trust him and learn more about him daily and commune with him. Commune with him in prayer. And we are to know this so we can stay away from these false teachers who only seek two things, the applause of the world and the world's money. It seems like they haven't even read the Bible because the only thing they want now, the thing they want most of all is their best life now. When we know when the best life actually begins. So learn and know his message. Let's pray. Jesus, may we never be like this people. May we fully understand your message here. May we not wind up in this manner. Help us to always look to you, be guided by you, and just know this word so greatly so we can pluck others out of this environment and bring them to you and guide them to you. We just love you so much and we are so, so thankful for your word. Amen.